This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. A lot of people win championships. That that's there's a lot of championships in sports. There's a lot of championships to be played. There's a lot of team games. By definition, that means a lot of people are going to win championships. And some of them are from around here. Some of them aren't. We've got a cut. We got at least one that is still in contention for the Stanley Cup. That would be Ryan Ellis. If the National Predators win, we'll have a Stanley Cup visit to the Hamilton area, I would expect, this summer. However, not everybody who wins a championship gets there in a way that you would have to describe as not the usual, that just has a great story of how they arrived. And that brings me to my next guest, Cristiano Giacinto played for the Windsor Spitfires for the past few years, and about a week ago, a little over a week ago, he was part of the team that won the Memorial Cup and finished his junior career. His last game as a junior uh, finished it with a championship. He joins me now. Cristiano, how are you? Congratulations. I'm good, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, i got to ask you, how's the body? I mean, these things, they take a toll. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's been a very weird, you know, six weeks. I mean, uh, we went through a very hard, you know, training uh, resume, and and those four games were, were very difficult, you know. We we were off the ice for so long, and, and it was very different to kind of get back into. And, and you know, now the body's been feeling after this week. I've been I've been resting up, so it's hopefully uh, back to 100% to, uh, to get to training for the summer here. Well, I, I know. I mean, for people who don't know this, uh, and I assume there are some who don't, the Memorial Cup tournament is not the same as the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, that is the... I think everybody acknowledges that's the all-time grind of grinds. But the Memorial Cup is different. It's a lot of games jammed into a short period of time. And I, I'm wondering, what, like, did it, was anyone on your team when you would go to the dressing room, even though you only had a few games in a really compressed time, were there guys that were really hurting by the end of that thing? Uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, for anyone, it's it's that playoff mentality. It's that it's that final stretch of games there. And I feel no, ma- no matter who was playing, you know, guys were sure after games. I mean... You know, it's such a high level, you know, of hockey. You know, it's with four such great skilled teams. You know, playing against three champions of their league. You know, it was it, it was a grind each game, and and you know, we had the ice packs out after each one, and and uh, you know, it, it, it was very difficult. I want to get to a little more of that in a minute, but let's go back for a second because this was, as I said, this was your final junior game. Yeah. But you took the difficult route to get to a Memorial Cup. Uh, let's start at the beginning. You were never drafted, right, by the OHL? No, never. Why? Uh, I mean, I guess you can call me a late bloomer. Um, I feel opportunity was the biggest thing. I mean, you know, um, for for players that don't always get the opportunity, they feel like their time is over. Um I mean, the biggest thing is if if you want something, it's it's to chase after it, and and even though a lot of people will will slam that door in your face, uh, eventually one door will open, and you just got to make the most of it. And it's the people who look for those doors are are the ones that are successful in the end. And I feel that's that was the biggest thing was you know keep pushing through all the negativity and 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 all the doubters out there. I feel like you know I kept pushing and. And it got uh, it got me to where I wanted to be. Okay, so you're a 16 year old or 16 year old. You don't get drafted by the OHL. Uh, where did you try to go to keep your hockey going? Yeah, I was. Uh, I tried out for the local junior B team here. It was the uh, Stony Creek Warriors at the time. Um, and and uh, nothing, you know. Uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't make that team. I got sent back uh, to play another year at AAA. I played uh, major midget here in Hamilton for the Huskies and. And it was a very good year for me. I mean, I had a lot of fun, and 
you know, I, I, I kept my goals intact. But it had to be a little frustrating, though, I got to think, too. that you, very, It was very frustrating. I mean, for someone like myself, I, I felt I deserved it. I felt, you know, I, I worked just as hard as some of the other players who, you know, who were ones that, that, that got picked up in the draft. And, and you know, I had a lot of help along the way. You know, guys telling me, don't worry about it. You know, keep working and, and good things will come. And, and, and it did. What kind, back in midget, minor midget and major midget, what kind of player were you? Were you the same player that you are now, or did you change your game? Because now you're, you're a guy who will hit, and you'll fight a bit, and you'll score. But I mean, you're, you're, you're the, what are they called, the Gordie Howe hat-trick guy. I mean, that, that's who you are. But was that what you were before, or did you adjust to become that? See, I, I've always enjoyed the physical, physical side of the game. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, you know, going out there and, and, and showing my strength, it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh I was uh, usually one of the more skilled players, but I mean, at the same time, I kept my game the same. Uh, I was a defenseman growing up. Uh, I switched to forward and minor midget, and, and that was kind of a, a different take on it for me. But uh, uh, that side is, has always been with me, I mean, ever, ever since I was a kid. And, and I feel like that that's what truly kind of helped me in the end was to get to that next level was that. Okay, so you somehow then uh, land eventually with the now defunct Hamilton Red Wings, the junior A team, the major, the uh, provincial junior A team. Um, What were you hoping when you got to there? What were you hoping to get out of that? Were you just hoping for a scholarship? Were you just hoping to prolong your hockey playing? What were you hoping for there? Well, I I was fortunate enough at the end of my my major midget season, you know, I was playing, I played a few games for the Burlington Cougars and, and the OJHL. And uh, I got a—I actually got a trial, uh, an OHL trial, my first one. And that was uh, that was the, the summer before I was with the Red Wings. Uh, I got the trial for the Erie Otters, and and that was an amazing experience. I mean, I was there all week. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think, you know, I really had a chance. And and I went there. I I played my game. I had fun with it. And and I was there for a while. I was doing really well. And and uh, I was actually one of the last cuts from there. And 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 leaving that those tryouts leaving that city I was I was I was in shock because I came so close and you know I I, I could see I could see the opportunity right there and I and I just missed it and yet yeah and yet still you don't get it yeah and and I feel that's when I came back to Hamilton uh, to play for the Red Wings you know I I got that taste of the OHL and and I just knew I knew at the end of the season that no matter what that's that's where I wanted to go and you know I, I kept I kept school in mind and I was a very viable option but uh, again, the OHL called uh, call, came calling pretty quick after after that. So it was it was kind of weird how it all played out. Okay, so you're in now into how many games into the Red Wings season were you roughly when you first heard from the Spitfires? I was about eight games, seven games in. All right, games. and had you basically set your mind that you were going to play that whole year with Hamilton? Uh, no, I mean, I, at first, yeah. Um, when the OHL team started calling, I. I, I kind of felt, you know, I, I deserved to, to get that jump and, and to make that move up. And, and there was a few teams that were calling, and, and it, was, it, was, it was a tough time for me to kind of decide, you know, where am I going to spend the next year, two years, possibly four years, right? And uh, eventually Windsor was my final choice. So you go down there, but now you're arriving after training camp, after the season's got going, everyone's got their roles, everyone's sort of locked into their positions. So you're coming in there and having to fight like crazy for ice time and even just to stick around. How do you do that? <laughs> oh, that was pretty crazy. It was, it was, we had two practices before our first game, and, and honestly, I, I came in very open-minded, and I, I felt, you know, I, 
I told myself I deserved to be there and and I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing. I was going to have fun. I was going to play hockey and and that's kind of the mindset I went into it and it started clicking. It really did right away. You know, the environment was good. Windsor, you know, did such a great job of bringing me in and, and making me feel comfortable and and being able to, you know, kind of play at my best. So it was it was it was a lot of fun and it was very different and I was I was just excited and nervous and it all kind of worked out in the first few weeks to where, you know, I was, you know, I got used to the speed and I was playing my game. You were scoring goals. <laughs> got a few goals, right? Right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, second game, uh, I got to score my first one against London. You know, I always remember that one. Got in a few fights. <laughs> a couple. Uh, got in, got a few hits in. More than a few. Yeah. I mean, uh, knowing I was going against some big boys, um, that was my biggest thing was coming in and, and making a presence, whether, you know, whether I'm not scoring or not, I'm, uh, I wanted to get, you know, get people to know who I was, get the fans to know who I was and, and really show everyone, you know, who I am and what my game entails. And, and that was my biggest thing is go out there. You know, like I said, you might not be the goal scorer. You might not be the guy making the assist, but as long as you're helping your team out in some way, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a big thing that not too many people, you know, can realize. The interesting part about that, well, it's all interesting, but the part that really, this really takes off now, about a year later, you decided to go to the NHL draft, which was in, where was it that year? It was in uh, Philadelphia. And, you know, I remember, I don't know how many times I've heard on TV, or you've heard it probably too, Don Cherry saying, if you're not going to go in the first or second round, don't go, you're going to sit there, and it could be humiliating, and it could be horrible for you. And I think you probably knew, I think everyone knew, you weren't going in the first round or the second round. And yet you decided to go anyway. Why? I mean, after after that first year, my, my my confidence was right up, and and you know I felt after all the people that have told me you know I I couldn't do it, and you know you're not going to make it this year, maybe next year. I kind of figured I'm like you know it doesn't doesn't matter what these people tell me. I can go to the draft, and and I might not hear my name get called. But and then what? What would have happened if you hadn't? Well, it it happened for two years in a row where it only pushed me to get better. Right. So if, if it wasn't for me getting drafted, it would have, you know, built that spark up in me. I mean, at least I feel that, that, you know, I would have pushed myself even harder. You're uh, torturing yourself here. You were, you would have been torturing yourself. (laughs) Honestly. And I, and I, and I, I asked myself that same question every day, like, man, what was I doing? Like it was, it was really difficult. It really was. And, and I just kept pushing, you know, and it, it wasn't probably the easiest road I could have taken, but I was very happy. That's kind of how it played out. It made me a stronger person. It, you know, it, it uh, made me appreciate things a lot more than than what I see now in the OHL. I mean, a lot of a lot of young players with with great talent come in and and you know they they take things for granted, and it's very disappointing to see. And I mean, for the guys that have to really work to you know to get to where they want to be. They they appreciate it a lot more and 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 that's kind of a big thing I saw with my four years in the OHL. Just you know, a lot of people don't don't have that drive. They you know, it's 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 so key for every young player to if they want to play, then they need to drive for. It. They need to they need to work as hard as they can to get there. Okay, so you're sitting in the arena in Philadelphia. Nothing in the first. You don't hear your name in the first round. You don't hear your name in the second round. You don't hear your name in the third round. You don't hear your name in the fourth round. You don't hear your name in the fifth round. And you're about two-thirds of the way through the sixth round. And all of a sudden? 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to hear your name get called at a draft is is something I would have never. I would have. You asked me that when I was playing with Hamilton uh, the year before, and I, I I would have would have told you, you know, you were you were crazy. I mean, the fact that you know after just a year of hard work, you know, I I achieved something so great, and it it just made me feel that you know, after everything I've been put through, it it was paid off in the end. And this was this was by the way, this was Tampa Bay that got up and called your name. Do you remember that moment, or was it a like a, a blur now? No, like I, I remember the phone calls were ringing with my agent, and I was kind of sitting up. I was getting a little anxious. My parents were actually in the concourse; they didn't want to even sit with me. They were getting <laughs> nervous. Yeah, and I remember seeing, you know, a few of the Tampa guys mumbling around, and and I know they were one of the teams I talked to. I had a pretty good interview with, and and you know, when I saw them go up, and they said from the OHL, that's I kind of I kind of knew, and then it happened. You know, I gave my parents and my agents a hug and walked down, and it was just. Very surreal feeling, something you know I never thought I could ever achieve. And to, well, to go down there and get that jersey was something really special. Back at the time, I remember writing about this because this was the greatest confluence of Hamiltonia in hockey <laughs> history ever because you're a Hamilton guy. The scout who scouted you and recognized you was Rob Kitamura, who was a Tampa Bay scout. He recommended you to Julian Breesbaugh, who used to be the general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, your agents, who spoke to Rob, are both Hamilton guys. And you go to the team that has a giant nine-foot statue of Dave Andrichuk standing outside the <laughs> arena. There, there could not be more Hamilton in that moment in, in anywhere in hockey. Well, yeah, especially to, to play out of his arena. I mean, That's right. You were used to play in Dave Andrichuk Arena. You're right, of course. Yeah, it was... Uh... It's weird how it worked out, and and I feel like that was kind of like my whole junior career, where you know even my hockey career, just a lot of ups and downs, but things always worked out, you know, because I've been I, I've been pushing myself, I've been working so hard, and 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 it sucks not not getting rewarded for that effort, you know, getting just you know like I said, getting that door closed on you, and it's so hard to keep pushing, but when you do it and it finally pays off, it's, it's the greatest feeling ever to prove people wrong is, is something so special that, I mean, I, I can't even, words can't even describe you know, how, how I feel. And, and, and just look now after four years of all that, you know, dealing with that, it, it paid off to a championship. And of course, when you get drafted, I bet all your friends went, Oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> you're so lucky. Like it was all luck that got you there. Not not all the work and all the everything else. You're so lucky, Cristiano. Yeah, I just took it as you know, uh, congrats and and kind of keep going. <laughs> that's that's all you can take it as, right? You do have a flair though for the dramatic a little bit because if my memory serves, and I may be wrong here, uh, your was it not your? Did you get a goal in Hamilton in your last ever game in Hamilton? Um, no, I got an assist. I was, I was pretty dang close. So I remember hitting the post. Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) But, and then of course you get into the Memorial cup and the story about the Memorial cup that a lot of, and we only have a couple minutes here, you guys lost in the first round of the playoffs. And because you were hosting, you ended up sitting out for like 44 days waiting for it to be done. A lot of people, and you heard this, I'm not telling you this for the first time. A lot of people said, because of that, you guys weren't really deserving champions because you just (laughs) got to rest and you got to practice and you got to wait and get healthy. And all these other teams, the three other teams that won their league championships came in all beat up and battered, and you guys took it. What do you say to those people? Because you heard that too. I know you heard that. 
they can look at all the all the videos of 44 days and 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 see just how crazy we worked, how hard we worked, how dedicated we were, and and how much adversity we placed all year. No one said anything when we had guys injured all year. No one no one said anything when when we were beating top teams and you know when we went three one up against London. People were doubting us all year. And before you know we were champions. They had a lot to say to where, oh, this team won't be ready. They're going to get steamrolled. They're going to be embarrassed. And to go 4-0 and in that tournament against what you're saying are tired teams, that's that's still unheard of. we got a minute here. Does Tampa still have your rights? No, I'm uh, I'm currently a free agent right now and hoping to get a pro deal by the end of by the end of summer here. Well, we are we're rooting for you. It's been a great story, Cristiano. From as I say, from basically nowhere to uh, winning a Memorial Cup and and now hopefully finding a, a pro place to play. And I wanted to mention for anyone who was paying attention at the roughly at the beginning of our discussion, the team that gave you a tryout first of all in the OHL and decided not to take you was the Erie Otters. Who again did you beat in the Memorial Cup final? <laughs> Uh, actually, twice uh, we we got to beat the Otters, which was an amazing feeling. Let me tell you. Did that cross <laughs> your mind that that was the team that didn't take you? Oh, did it ever? <laughs> did it ever? Cristiano Di Giacinto, uh, listen for his name. Watch for his name. He'll be doing something in hockey in the next little while. Listen, we uh, congratulations. Really appreciate you taking the time tonight. Oh, Scott, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. We will talk to you again soon. Uh, again, Cristiano Di Giacinto, great story. Great story. And you know what? He is not the only guy from around here. Cam Talbot, who's the goalie for the Edmonton Oilers, fantastic season. He has a story that is similar to that. Very similar to that, in fact. A lot of guys around here have had to struggle and struggle and claw and scratch and finally make it. There's another one. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Most of us around here know an athlete of some kind. Most of us probably know an artist of some kind. I'm sure most of us know a lawyer or a doctor or a pharmacist or a cook or a driver or a gardener or a whatever. But around this area, I'm guessing anyway, that very few of us come across opera singers all that often. It is just not something that I hear in conversation all the time. Hey, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm an opera singer. It doesn't happen. We don't have, this isn't Italy. We don't have opera singers all over the place. So our exposure to the medium, to the artistic style, to the music, and to those who do it is, I think, pretty darn limited. Well, my next guest hopefully can fix that. Uh, You may have read about her in The Spectator the other day in a great piece by Emma Riley. Mia Lennox is a mezzo-soprano, which, for those who don't follow classical music and all this, that means someone whose voice sort of falls in the low range of soprano to the higher range of contralto. Not, as someone told me today when I said that she was a mezzo-soprano, they said, oh, that means she's a really, really good soprano. Well, she is that, but that's not what the definition means. But Mia Lennox joins me now. Mia, thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Although, you'll take the really, really good soprano part if that's the new definition, right? I will 100% take that. (laughs) Tell me how this happens, because we are in this area, as I said in the intro there, we are exposed to rock, to pop, to hip-hop, to country, to rap, to whatever else. But around here, anyway, at least where I I go, we aren't exposed to an awful lot of opera. So how does someone from this area end up in this world? 
I know it sounds, I hear that a lot. It's, um, I started off singing in choirs, I think like a lot of kids do. Love singing in choirs. I actually did a ton of jazz when I was in high school. And then as I got a little bit older, I heard uh, my father always played classical music. So I was sort of familiar with opera, and I started thinking, you know, this is kind of an interesting art form. It has everything. It has all kinds of different languages. It has different stages. It has dramatic stories and uh, really loud singing. So uh, <laughs> once I, uh, I I met an opera singer, actually, when I was in high school, she did a bit of a voice clinic at my high school, and when I sang for her, she sort of spent some extra time with me, and she said, you know, I think you should really consider this. So uh, I was about 15 at the time, and I started to really think about studying. I played the piano and French horn, and I started to sing, and I realized I really love this. And as my voice grew and developed, it sort of became obvious that this is going to be the direction that I went, and and. Uh, and I went to university to study uh, uh, voice performance. But you obviously, I, I was going to ask that next, there obviously is a huge amount of natural talent. You're not going into this line of work if you are not really able to sing to begin with. No, that's true. I mean, I, I will say that I think people are very quick to say they can't sing. Um, but uh, no, you're right. There, there needs to be a certain level of talent, which I fortunately possessed. Uh, but after that point, there's a heck of a lot of hard work yeah. and a lot of competition and, and frankly, quite a bit of luck as well. Let me, just before we move on, let me ask you, you say that a lot of people say they can't sing. Do you think a lot of people really can't sing or are a lot of people either too shy or have no confidence so they're not willing to actually sing out loud and they don't really know if they can sing? I think it's the latter. I think people are really hard on themselves about how their voices sound. I've had lots of people say, oh, I can't sing, I can't sing, and then I'd catch them singing sort of off in the car or just sort of around the house, and they'd be like, you actually totally can sing. <laughs> I think when people say they can't sing, it means they can't really carry a tune, they really can't find the melody. But uh, most people actually can, and little kids start singing, and they're so unselfconscious about it. Every little kid thinks they're amazing, and somehow along the way, we, we lose that, which I think is which I think is too bad. Why? Why do you think that is? Because we don't... There are other things we'll do. There's two things in life that most people refuse to do because they have no confidence about it, and that is singing and dancing in public. I don't know why. I mean, people will speak in front of huge crowds, but ask them to sing Happy Birthday, and they won't do it. Why, why are those two things the things that spook us? I think that it makes you very exposed. The thing about singing is it's incredibly vulnerable. You've got nothing in between you and the art that you're making. So it's really all about who you are as a person. And I think as we get older, we get, become more self-aware and sometimes more self-conscious. And maybe we have somebody along the way who says, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound good. And it shuts you right down. I think that's what happened. And yet, every single one of us, I defy anyone to argue with me on this one, every single one of us, when we get into the shower, all think that we are as good an opera singer as you are. You know what? Probably a lot of you are pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I wasn't saying we were, but we have this belief when we get into an enclosed space where we can just let loose, mm-hmm. everybody thinks they're, I don't think anyone in the shower thinks they're a terrible singer. Well, no, and isn't that interesting? Because it's such a freeing expression, and it's so joyful, and people do it instinctively. So that's really what the wonderful thing is about. It makes people feel good. So if there's no audience, and you're just doing it for your own pleasure, it's hugely fun. Does that mean, then, that you are completely relaxed at all times when you sing, when you go for an audition, when you perform in front of a crowd, that you just let loose, and you just enjoy it, and there's no nerves? Absolutely not true. I have tons (laughs) of nerves. 
tons of nerves. And I think uh, most singers do, most performers do. Auditions are essentially you go into a room and you're either what they want or, or not. And quite frankly, 90% of our career is rejection. So you get very comfortable with it very early or it's just not going to be the career for you. And what you just said, though, that if singing is kind of you, if it's an expression, a vulnerable expression of you, that all that rejection has to be pretty difficult because they are rejecting not necessarily your art, they're rejecting you. Yeah, and I think that a lot of us can take it that way, and that's the tricky part of the psychology. A lot of singers work with sports psychologists. It's the same really? kind of mindset. Okay. Oh, yeah, a lot of us do. Um, it's the same approach because we are essentially like elite athletes. We train the same way. We're under the same amount of pressure, the same amount of expectation. Um, maybe a few fewer people in the opera house than in the the Sky Dome, for example, but uh, but it's the same kind of training. So I think if you're going to be a healthy singer, sort of mentally, especially psychologically, you have to learn to separate who you are as a person from the art that you make. One informs the other, but one they're two separate people. I always thought, well, I, ha- I mean, it's a similar comparison, I suppose, that to a bodybuilder, which sounds like maybe the weirdest com- comparison of all time, but you are judged, if you're a bodybuilder, you're up there, they're judging you. They're not judging anything else. It's literally you, and it would be the same with singing. They're judging you. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's the same thing, probably the same thing in bodybuilding. There's kind of parameters that let you judge like what's what you want, what's acceptable, what's considered beautiful or good form. It's the same thing in singing, but ultimately it is subjective. It's often mm-hmm. in the eye of the beholder. So um, you could do, and that's sort of my, what where I got to in my singing career is if I went out and I sang in a way that made me very happy and that I felt good about, well, that was good enough for me, whether I got the audition or not. And after a while, you kind of just have to go out there and be like, well, let's see how this goes. I'm here to have fun. Let's go back a bit then, again, back to the beginning when you first start this. Because, again, I don't know how around here or in, in Ontario anywhere, if you decide you want to be an opera singer, how easy is it to find someone who can train you in that? Because you just don't hear a lot of people saying that I have opera schools or something around here. How do you find that teaching? Well, um, I grew where I grew up, I had a very good voice teacher. So I actually grew up a little bit um, north of Toronto, and then I've been in Hamilton for about 15 years now. Um, so I sang with that. I was fortunate to find a good singing teacher in my hometown. And I was not too far from the University of Toronto. And the University of Toronto has a wonderful music program and has the first opera school that was ever in Canada. So this is, I went and did my Bachelor of Music and Performance at the U of T. And then from there, I went into the opera school at the University of Toronto. So they have excellent teachers, pianists, coaches, directors, and you get really intense training on languages, performance, uh, and sort of performing etiquette. And you really get to sink your teeth into the fundamentals of being a good, solid singer. Okay, if there's an opera school then at U of T, that must mean that they pump out a reasonable number. How many opera singers are there in Ontario or Canada or this area? Mm -hmm. Oh boy, it's hard. It's actually not that big of a crowd because people a lot of a lot of us start, but not so many of us stick it through. It's a tough. It's a tough life. It's a tough lifestyle. It's incredibly competitive. So I would think when I started my opera school at U of T, there were just five of us actually. That really? Started okay. In my year. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I've done programs in the United States. I've done programs uh, overseas where um, you know you'd have 650 people audition and they would take 20. So there's all that's 650 singers that are really into this, but it's about who are the people that they take. But that means if if there are that many people, at least who are singing, that means the audition process. Um, you talk about the rejection, but it's got to be pretty brutal when you go in there because there can't be that many parts either. 
There are, and especially interestingly for a mezzo, because I'm the lower female part, not every opera has a mezzo. Almost every opera will have a soprano and for sure a tenor, but not every opera has a mezzo. So there's even that that more, uh, that sort of added element of fewer roles in general. So it is very competitive and you have to, there's sort of a track that you take. So you do your undergrad, then you go to opera school, and then you go to a young artist training program. I spent a year in France and then two years in Montreal. And from there, if you're continuing to progress, you tend to sign with an agent. And once you sign with your agent and work with them, you're kind of a freelance and they help to get some work for you. But it's difficult times now. There's not between Brexit and, and lack of funding for the for the arts. It's it's even more difficult. There's there's fewer opportunities, unfortunately. And so when you walk into an audition now, then um, is it do you walk in with your chest puffed out saying I got this because I know I can do this, or do you walk in? You talked about your nerves performing. Do you walk in nervous for an audition? Nobody wants to see a nervous singer, so we learned to fake it pretty well. <laughs> and. You got to fake it. Nobody wants to see a singer freaking out on stage. So I think really you do have to just be like, you know what? I'm the answer to this problem. I'm the answer hmm. to what they want. I'm going to go in and show them why I'm the answer. Because if you don't go in confident, then it's just not a good experience for anyone. How can you tell? If I'm, Could I tell as an average listener, if you were nervous up on stage, could I hear it in your voice or could only a real expert pick that out? Probably at this point, at this level uh, of my career, it would take a real expert. Um, you can't really tell. I've had lots of friends and family tell me, uh, I couldn't tell. You look so great, so relaxed. I was like, I was literally dying. I was so <laughs> nervous. But no, you do. That's part of the performance technique that you learn how to present yourself in a way that's always confident and calm, even if inside you really want to just run out the door. <laughs> I hate to ask this question, but have, have you ever, either in an audition or in a performance, hit a sour note? Oh, God, everybody has. Everybody has. You sort of train to make sure that they're not that terrible when you <laughs> So nothing is ever perfect. We train to be uh, a high level of consistency and a high level of performance. But, I mean, I remember singing in, uh, in an outdoor theater in the States, and I went to go sing a high note, and a fly flew right into my mouth. No. So Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, <laughs> I choked that one out. That wasn't the best sound I've ever made, but you kind of have to roll with it. You never know what's going to happen. But are you, when that happens, are you up there knowing every eye and every ear is on you? Or are you just dying a slow death? Well, you know what? In those kind of instances, my problem is I tend to find the humor in far too many things. So once that happens, then I get an idea of how that sounded and how I probably look. I have to fight not to get the giggles, actually, to be honest. <laughs> what, what, if you have, what if you have a, I mean, these auditions, again, there's not that many roles. So you have to go when an audition happens and you can't tell them, I'm not feeling well today. Can I come back? So what happens if you're sick? If you're sick, you don't do it because you, if you are really sick, well, just two things. If I was sick and I, there was an audition coming up, I would tell my agent, no, I would bow out because I'd want to give myself the best showing I possible, possibly could. But I've been hired to sing a role and I get sick. This actually just happened to me in January in Montreal. Uh, it's just me. And this is an incredibly difficult role. There's nobody to fill in for me. No understudy? So, no understudy. There, there aren't as many understudies any longer in the opera houses, so it would have been a massive scramble to try and find somebody who could sing the role that I was singing in Montreal, which was a very difficult role. So I got incredibly sick. I had a windpipe infection and a lung infection and you name it. And I made a beeline for the ENT and, and the ear, nose and throat doctor. We got myself on a cocktail of antibiotics and some nasal sprays and I just got, my, got through the performance. But that's all the parts of you that are required to sing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like taking a trumpet, I suppose, and like bashing it out of shape and then saying, okay, now play on key. Well, the interesting thing about singing technique is that's part of how you learn. When you are really at 
not at 100%. And frankly, we never feel like we're at 100%. There's always something. Mm. There are those magical performances where everything lines up. But most of the time, you're working against some kind of adversity. So I think in those situations, the technique really kicks in. So you understand what you need to do as a basically as an athlete to adjust your instrument so that you can make the best possible sound under the circumstances, which is what I did with a little help of antibiotics. I mean, it really, considering again, that I would think because it's such a small world that if you go for an audition and you're not at your best, or if you perform and you're not at your best, that is going to leave a taste or a memory in the, in the memory of the people who run these things. And then when you come back for the next audition, that's, you've already got a reputation beforehand. So you kind of, I would think that one all leads to the next, correct? It can, absolutely. So auditions, again, that's why we only try and do our best showing. But for performances, and we are absolutely, singers are our own worst critics. We are always hardest on ourselves. So you really, um, sometimes you can make an announcement if you have to sing and you're sick. In my case, from the role I was singing, uh, the range that it was in, and I had a wonderful conductor and a wonderful director, I got the best reviews of my life, even though I was incredibly <laughs> ill. So don't well, ask me how that happens. <laughs> well, you, just take it, right? You just take it. Yeah. I took it. Now, I, are all operas in Italian? They are not. They are not at all. They're, I mean, that's sort of the perception that they're in Italian, but I actually, the one I just did was in French. We sing in German and Russian and Czech. Uh, we sing in English, all kinds of languages. Do you speak, other than English, you obviously speak English, do you speak any of those other languages? Well, I'm bilingual, so I speak French and English. I speak a little bit of German, a little bit of Italian. But part of our training and part of what we learn how to do as singers is the diction and to pronounce everything perfectly. And so I can understand, if I see the words on a page, I can understand what I'm singing, whether it be in German or Russian or French or Italian. And anything that you don't fully understand, you spend a lot of quality time with your dictionary to make sure you understand what every single word means and that you're pronouncing it perfectly. And singers also work with coaches, kind of like athletes do. So coaches are the ones that listen to you. They help to correct your diction to make sure it's perfect. They look at what you need to be doing musically in the while you're singing, and they help you really just become, like, really deliver an elite, consistent performance. So a lot of it, then, you would be singing phonetically. You learn the uh, word and learn how to pronounce it and then go with it. Yes. In lots of cases, that's part of it. I mean, we do develop a pretty strong understanding over the years of doing it. But initially, uh, many of us do try and go abroad and study, uh, do programs that, like I said, I study here in France. You can go and spend a summer in Germany or other places. That'll really help to sort of embed the language. But we also take a lot of language classes. I did a couple of years at the Goethe Institute in Toronto, which is the German-speaking institute. So you really learn to be more familiar with the language. So you could fake it really well. Super well. <laughs> Do you? But, but I would think that if you these are an opera is not just singing. It's a play. It's it's a it's a performance, and so to be able to perform, you have to understand what it is that you're saying. Absolutely. And so how do you do that if you don't necessarily speak the language? Does someone explain it to you, or do you have to just word by word go through the dictionary? How do you understand it? Well, there's a few different ways to do it. Word by word through the dictionary, absolutely, there's parts of that. A lot of times you can find, especially now, there are wonderful um, translations even online. So you can look at what, the, what we call a lyrical translation. So it's a very close translation from, say, Italian to English, but very true to the words. So you get a very good sense of what everything is about. So you, between working with the dictionary, working with your coach, and then using the lyrical translations, there's, there are, there's never a singer that I know that goes into rehearsal that doesn't know exactly what they're doing every moment and why. How do you practice? Because you can't screw up your voice entirely by singing all the time. And, and a lot, I would think, 
while you're very good, what you do is at times going to put some strain on your voice. It's good because you're doing it. I mean, if as someone who throws a baseball all the time, your shoulder eventually gets tired. So how do you practice to get to the point where you can be as good as you are? Well, that's a really good parallel to talk about throwing a baseball and your arm getting tired. It's the same thing. You don't want your voice to get tired. So you sort of uh, manage how much time you're actually singing full out. So if I was to practice, I don't really practice for more than an hour, to be honest, in a row. I might break it up in little sections. We build our stamina so that we're able to withstand a, a fairly um, rigorous rehearsal schedule, but there's very rarely performances where, we, performances where you have to perform back-to-back. Usually we have breaks in between. And then there's other things we do to sort of guard our voices sort of at a day-to-day level. So um, if we have kids, we try not to yell at them too much. So that's one of the things <laughs> I try not to do. Um, you drink a lucky lot kid. of water. Yeah, lucky kid. You drink a lot of water. You stay quiet when you can, especially when you're in performance. You just take care of how much you use your voice. And then also you sort of learn how to use your voice properly. So if I was to yell, I'm not going to yell in a way that's going to hurt my voice. I'm going to use all of my support right down from my my lungs and my diaphragm to get the sound out. So we sort of, there are other things you can do day to day to take care of yourself. But do you catch yourself all the time singing around the house? Is that just you? Oh, no, I totally do. It's super annoying. I never stop. And is it in opera style or is it just whatever? It depends, whatever. I mean, I will say I'm a terrible, terrible karaoke singer because once in a while, after you've trained... <laughs> I find opera, that hard to believe. Oh, it's really awful. If, you, if you've trained as an opera singer and you go and try and sing a rock song, you can't totally pull yourself out of the opera sound and it's really quite hideous. So I do think I've been trained for so long in this genre that I always do sound a bit like an opera singer. But every once in a while, I'll try and bust something out. I do a good journey, don't stop believing every once in a while. But mostly it does sound like opera all the time. Well, you could do a little bit of Bohemian Rhapsody. There's a little opera in there. You could uh, you could jump in and you know help them out a little bit. Um, so does your son? You have an eight year old son, I understand. So now you said you were exposed to opera by your dad playing classical. Is your eight year old son now l- going to have to follow your footsteps and become an opera singer because all of his life now he's been exposed to opera? Absolutely not. I'd like him to be a surgeon, actually, but I'm going <laughs> to let him pick. I'm going to let him pick. Um, no, I, you know, he's a very musical little boy, my son, and, and uh, comes from sort of um, his father's family is very musical, as is my family. But uh, it's not really his thing. He, he likes it. and It's kind of mommy's job. But he's pretty funny. He doesn't. He's been to a couple of my performances and, and he's really enjoyed it. But I remember when he was younger and I would tell him how many people were coming to my shows, how many people would come to an opera. He'd be like, oh, mommy, don't exaggerate. Like he didn't believe that many people would come and see me. So he's not he's not very impressed. Just before I let you go, and I want to ask about that one thing, because there are people, and I'm, I'm not going to ask you to sing now because I know your voice isn't warmed up. I'd love you to, but I'm not going to ask you to because you're not ready. I don't want to cause you to pull your uvula or something, and I'll be <laughs> responsible for a horrible injury. But there are some people that can stand in front of an opera house or whatever, a, a huge group of people, whether it's opera or some other performance, and perform no problem. They look at this huge crowd of people, and it's okay, but they can't. If you ask them to sing at a dinner party in front of five people, that level of intimacy is too much. Are you... Are you able to sing in front of two or three people and feel just as comfortable as in front of a huge crowd or vice versa? Do you know what? I'm comfortable in front front of two or three people, absolutely. But I will say that I prefer a much bigger crowd. I think we're sort of conditioned to look at a larger number of people. It means we can't see every single tiny reaction from every person. Right, right. 
And we are also trained to like make a lot of noise, frankly. So if you're in a room with two or three people, it might be a little much if they're in the same room with you. But when you're in a big hall singing over an orchestra, it all clicks into place exactly the way it should. You do, as we go here, you do have another job. Do the people at your other job ever hear you sing? Have you ever sung for the people at your work? No, I haven't. Not yet. Although they they uh, read the article that you mentioned, and now I think I might have some pressure. But uh, no, they haven't. They haven't heard me. But who knows? They may. They go to my website. So they go to my website. They can hear me. What is your website for people? They can go look you up. It's www.mialennox.com. And that is her name, Mia Lennox. Uh, Mia, really appreciate you doing this today. It's a great article in The Spectator. Go read it by Emma Riley. You can find it at thespec.com still. You can just Google her name online, Mia, M-I-A, Lennox, and you can find it at mialennox.com. Mia, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. Uh, Again, we don't, we don't expose ourselves. We don't have a lot of exposure around here to opera. I find it fascinating because it's not a style of music that I listen to much. I don't dislike it. I enjoy it when I hear it, but it's just not something that... I catch all that often, and as a result, we don't really even know those around us in our midst to sing this style of music, but there you go. Maybe that is the only opera singer other than Pavarotti you've ever listened to do an interview. Maybe not even him. Hopefully you learned something. I did. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.